Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 21. Jesus rejected at Nazareth. Then Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found a place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favour has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. This is the word of the Lord. If we were a stick of rock, I, I wonder what words there would be if you were to chop us up. Sounds painful, I know, but uh, chop us up along the line. Obviously, love's a key thing, uh, but in being culturally Christian, and, and I'm not talking about culture as a whole, I'm talking about what is the culture, the DNA of who we are as followers of Christ. We've been made new creations in Christ. The old has gone, the new has come. So actually there's a, there's a new culture, the new default mechanism. I know that's sometimes hard for us to appreciate because we still sometimes mess up. But actually in Christ, when we become Christians, there's actually a new reality. And the old is washed away, and there's a new thing, the, the new the vision, the dream, the reality, a new track that we're on in Christ. And so there's a new spiritual culture placed within us. Love sums it up well, but how do we break that down? What, what does that look like in terms of the core of who we are in terms of being Christ-like? There are five things that we've sort of thought of and identified as church in terms of that culture, that sort of new default mechanism, that direction that we take, generosity, unity, integrity, humility, and authority. We're going to look at the first two this morning and then look at the, the next three next week. So in terms of generosity, I love a story about, uh, told by an author, Brennan Manning, about a guy, a priest called Ed Farrell, who went to two weeks to Killarney to see some of his family members, and particularly his uncle, who was going to be 80 during the time he went on holiday to Killarney. And on the day of the, of the birthday, the big day, he went uh, with his uncle. He got up before dawn, and they went out around one of the lakes, beautiful lakes in Killarney, to watch the sunrise. And they were walking along the shore as the sun, the beautiful orb, just came up uh, across the water. And um, Ed turned to his uncle and just saw this big, broad, beaming smile on his face. And he said, you look very happy, how come? And he was really struck by the reply of his 80-year-old uncle, who just said, the father is very fond of me. 
the Father is very fond of you. The one who made you loves you deeply. He is very fond of you. Everything in the Christian life flows from believing that. Everything in following Jesus Christ flows from the place of believing that our Father is generous and He's generous towards us. As people, as a church, He's generous towards us. Isaiah the prophet sums it up in declaring the word of of the Lord saying, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will never forget you. We all know how much a mother loves a suckling child. Isaiah is saying, the Lord saying through Isaiah, even in the very, very unlikely scenario that mother forgets her child, I will never forget you. The Lord is very fond of you. Your father loves you. There's a saying that we've said sometimes over the years that should come up on the screen, and um, it'd be good to say it again today. In good Church of Ireland fashion, I'll say, God is good, and you'll say, please, all the time. God is good. God is good. All the time. Everyone's awake. That's good. You and I in life face sickness, bereavement, unemployment, disappointment, broken dreams, broken relationships, and yet we continue always to say, even when we don't feel like it, God is good all the time. It's a declaration of faith. The darkness of the world wants to kick out of us and suck out of us the faith to say, God is good all the time. The Bible is a story about liberation. In the central moment of the Old Testament that we had the privilege of reading really over this last year or so, we're, we're doing a thing called um, Immersed Bible Reading Experience over a course of about three years, and we're sort of halfway through. We're going to start the prophet's book um, towards the end of this month in our life groups and our immersed groups, and there'll be a chance to sign up for those. But we've read the primary history over this last year or so going out from Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and on then through to Kings and Samuel in recent times. The central moment in the Old Testament, the thing that sort of everything else rotates around is the Exodus. It's the, it's the defining moment of identity for the people of Israel. If there's one moment to choose out of the Old Testament that says, this describes who we are, it's the Exodus. It's a group of bedraggled slaves coming out of Egypt from under the tyrannical hold and grip of Pharaoh, who for months and years and decades and even centuries has subjected the people of Israel to forced labor without a day off. Imagine if for yourself and your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents and your great-great-great-grandparents that there has never been a holiday and you have never had a day off. 
That's what slavery in Egypt looked like. There were no days off. And so what's the first thing the Lord in his generosity does when he brings his people miraculously out of Egypt into the wilderness on their journey towards the promised land? He says to them, I command you to take a day off every week. It had to be a command because if you and your parents and your grandparents, if none of you have ever had a day off, you're going to need to be commanded, take a day off. For some of us here today, one of the new things the Lord will want to do in our lives is to break workaholism. Sometimes it can be passed down to us from parents and grandparents where there's an ethic which is your sense of fulfillment and worth comes from your output. The Lord came to set the captives free. What does that mean? Well, it means lots of different things. But for some of us here today, what it means is start taking a day of rest, a complete day of ceasing from productivity. And do the most productive thing of all. Do what you just enjoy doing. Then came as the people settled in the land, the command to observe the Jubilee, which was the remission of debts and a year's rest for the land every seventh year. So even the land was given a rest, which we know from modern science really makes a lot of sense. And then once every 49 years, the seven sevens, liberty, a trumpet was blasted, liberty was declared throughout the land to all its inhabitants, and the slaves were set free in the community of Israel, and any land that had originally belonged ancestrally to somebody was returned to them. Imagine how transformative that would be in society if you, for, some, for a reason of debt, in those days, basically, if Hardy came to Hardy, you couldn't afford to live anymore. The only option was that you sold yourself to a neighbor as a slave. It was common throughout the ancient world. It happened within Israel. And then you were then bonded to that person. Imagine once every 49 years, a trumpet blew in the land. It was a reset. And the reset was, if you're a slave, you're now free. And the land that your parents sold because they, they couldn't afford to run it anymore or they'd racked up debts, that's being returned to them. Imagine how transformative that is when slavery is abolished every 49 years. That's the jubilee. Jesus Christ said those wonderful words of Isaiah the prophet that Isaiah declared in Isaiah 61. We heard them this morning, but they were first said through Isaiah. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. The Lord has anointed me to proclaim, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted, to proclaim that captives will be released, that prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn, 
at the time of the Lord's favor has come. Jesus read those words from the scroll in that little rural synagogue in the backwater of Galilee, and then he sat down and he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he was saying, we've been waiting for the Sabbath, the true rest of God to arrive. We've been waiting for the great jubilee of jubilees when all debt will be cleared, slaves will be released, and all property will be returned that what's been robbed will be restored. And Jesus reads from the prophet Isaiah, and he says, today is that day. Today is the day of the great reset, where all slaves are going to be set free, and everything that's been robbed is going to be restored. And he meant much more than the emancipation of slaves. He meant much more than land being returned. What he meant was that the spiritual, mental, social incarceration that we either bring on or were born into through our society or family or which by our own um, error of thinking we embrace in our lives, whether it be self-defeatism or self-loathing or uh, whether it's workaholism or whether it's the inability to, to keep and sustain good relationships, whether it's the inability to forgive people for the way they've hurt us, whatever it happens to be, Christ says, I've come to bring liberty. That if you're racked with guilt for what you've done or said or haven't done or haven't said, I have come to release you from that. It's quite a claim for a carpenter to make in a rural synagogue in the backwater called Galilee to say, whatever hang-ups, hold-ups, guilt, problems, limitations, restrictions, and misery are on your life, I have come to free you from it. That's why we're generous towards our Father, because Christ as he invites us around this table of communion today to say, this is about justice and this is about restoration, he is saying to us, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And what you and I know deep inside that we need more than anything else is soul rest. A weariness that no holiday can fix, that no consumable product can meet, that only Jesus Christ can deal with. So the Lord's generosity has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Titus 2.14 says, Jesus gave his life to free us from every kind of sin and to cleanse us and to make us his very own people totally committed to doing good deeds. You see, what happens is that whenever we accept and recognize and enjoy the generosity of God, the grace of God, that His Son, Jesus Christ, came and lived and His body was broken and His side was pierced and His blood was poured out so that what needs to be fixed can be fixed that the old can be put away and a new life dawn. That our response is one of generosity. 
there's words that are underlined in that because I found them particularly challenging during this last week and reflecting on them. Asking myself, am I, is Nigel Parker totally committed to doing good deeds? The answer, of course, is no, I am not. But boy, I want to be. And it's not a vain hope or dream because that's what Christ is doing in us. And I've been really encouraged, as Johnny mentioned, and financial giving is only one small part of it, but the culture of generosity I see is growing in this church family. And it comes across in all sorts of ways. It comes across whenever people say, you know, in that place of bereavement, in that place of loneliness, in that place where I lost my job, in that place or whatever, do you know the people in my life group, my immersed group in this church, they were such a blessing to me. They prayed for me. They listened to me. They brought me meals. They, they loved me and my children. And I love to hear those stories because they're stories of generosity. And that's what the Lord is doing. And I want to encourage you that that is happening. The transformation is happening. But still I'm challenged. Every day I get up and am, am I totally committed to doing good deeds? I really do want to be. Paul said, to, he wrote to Philemon, and he was encouraging Philemon to release his slave Onesimus or to set his, his slave free. And he says, when he's writing to Philemon in Philemon 6, and he says, I am praying that you will put into action the generosity that comes from your faith. And really that's core to what the Christian faith is about, isn't it? Putting into action the generosity that comes from our faith. My hope and prayer for myself, for all of us, is that increasingly people will say of us, those people in Bangor Parish, they are generous and they are helpful. It's really good to hear about the harbor ministry. It's really good to hear about many other aspects of how we're seeking to do good in the community. The rubber really hits the road in the place where in our own neighborhoods and families and workplaces and whatever, that, that we embody that generosity and that the aroma, the fragrance of, of being fully human, of being different, really is in people's nostrils and they, they recognize generosity. And that's so transformative. Being generous, being gracious, particularly in a kind word to people, is utterly transformative. I'm amazed sometimes just in moments where with a stranger or whoever to say something encouraging or nice to them, I'm always amazed how taken aback they seem to be. And it makes me wonder how starved are we of words of encouragement to say, well done, or it'll be okay, or I'll pray for you, or can I help you with that? Often we just don't expect it in society. It makes such a difference whenever we go out on a limb and we offer that word or that act. So that's generosity. What about unity? 
I'd love it too that as we, as we look in the mirror, as people talk about us, they would say, not just only are we a generous people, but they would say, you know, those people in that Bangor Parish Church family, they are really good to each other. They really love each other. And again, I want to encourage you because as month and month and year and year goes on, I see that more and more. Jesus said that everyone will know that you're following in my footsteps if we love one another. And so he invites us as family around his table today as those who know his love and have a love for each other. The common story into which we are baptized is one which binds us together. It's one of being delivered from slavery to become royalty. That's the overarching thrust of the whole Bible story, that people who were enslaved in the end become royalty. Revelation finishes with us amazingly with crowns on our heads, throwing them down before the feet of Jesus. We may miss the meaning and the significance of the fact that we will have crowns on our head in the first place. That's why in these, I suppose, five cultures of Christian faith will end on the one of authority. The one that comes from knowing true human dignity of being image bearers of God in a broken world. You and I together are on a journey from slavery to royalty. And in Christ, that is who we are. And so we love each other, we forgive each other, we support each other spiritually, emotionally, financially, practically, prayerfully. We spend time together, talk together, pray together, sing together. Of course, we eat together, learn together, serve together in a world which may not understand why we do what we do and may not agree with all we believe. We believe that the only way to have a relationship with God, our Creator and Father, is through Jesus Christ, the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We believe there is no other way. We believe that life is a gift given to us in Jesus Christ. It should not be deliberately ended for the sake of convenience, either in the womb, in sickness, or in old age. We believe that we are made male and female by the Lord at the moment of our conception, that our gender is a biological reality. It is a gift from God to be celebrated throughout the entirety of our lives. We believe that celibacy and lifelong faithful marriage between one man and one woman are also gifts from the Lord. We believe that sexual relations are a gift from the Lord solely for the context of such marriage. We believe that children are a gift from the Lord and they thrive best, and all the studies show this, they thrive best in the environment of marriage and family. And we believe that through baptism that we, you and I, are united with Jesus Christ and one another as members of the eternal family, the church. And so this morning, as we gather together as family around this table, Jesus invites us. He does so 
pouring out his generosity and increasing in us that generosity that has come through his life and death and his resurrection power because it is the power in Christ, the power that rose Christ from the dead that enables us to live this new life. A life that stands out like light in the darkness, the light of Christ in us, a life that is generous, a life that is united with those who are around us. You see, this calling is not, it's not a lone ranger pursuit. It's a corporate pursuit. And the Lord has given us one another to cheer each other on in this wonderful journey, leaving behind slavery, leaving behind the incarcerations, the restrictions, the misery that this world wants us to imbibe and live by, and to step into what Christ has won for us, liberty and joy and freedom and justice. And not just to be recipients of that, but also to be generous donors of that, to be agents in a world that so desperately needs to know what does generous humanity look like? And what do people look like who deeply love the Lord who made them and who deeply love each other? That's who we are. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have made us new in Christ. thank you that in your life and death and resurrection, the great reset button has been hit, has been pressed, and that we are part of that new beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh. Lord, fill us afresh with your newness of life. Fill us afresh with hope and joy and peace. Lord, we invite you afresh into our lives that where there are areas which we just seem to just keep going around in circles, we pray, Lord, that this year there would be new wineskins for a new wine. There would be new patterns and structures and thought processes in our lives that can house and cope with the new life that you're pouring out. And we ask for all of this for your praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.